afternoon, Wisconsin, 12.08. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. As Eric was just mentioning, Insight 2018, two weeks from tomorrow at the Country Springs Hotel. Tickets on that sale now at WTMJ.com. Our headliner is uh, Governor Scott Walker. Your chance to see the governor in perhaps a more intimate setting than typically. And we're going to have a lot of fun. We, we have serious questions about the reelection effort. Um, his tenure in office, where he wants to go from here, and all sorts of stuff. So it's a great opportunity to see Governor Walker up close and personal. We're going to have the Attorney General Brad Schimmel. He is going to be there. Both of the GOP Senate candidates are going to be there, one via video, one in person. We're going to have uh, Judge Michael Skranach, who is the conservative running for the state Supreme Court. And what's going to be a very, it is already a closely watched uh, race that's getting national attention. His opponent, a liberal Milwaukee County Court uh, Circuit Court judge, has already started talking about policy and how, seems to me if you listen to her campaign, you'd think she's running for governor, not state Supreme Court justice. But Mike Skranek will be there. Uh, Kathleen O'Leary from the Wisconsin State Fair. We're going to talk the future of the state fair. And as I was looking over the lineup, it occurred to me, well, we, we needed a congressional presence. So um, Congressman Glenn Grothman's going to join us. Um, just cemented that yesterday. In addition, we might have some more guests coming in as well. But tickets on sale now at um, WTMJ.com. See Jeff Wagner's Insight 2018. The ticket sales, I am told, have been robust. So hope to see you out there. It is always a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to it quite a bit. All right, we start off today's show like we start off every show Three big things. Let's start with story number one. And I we will be talking about actually the Rex Tillerson firing a little bit later on. And why is it that that nobody lasts very long working for Donald Trump? Which to me is the interesting aspect here. It's it's not that necessarily Rex Tillerson is gone, but it's that everybody ends up being gone and quite candidly, the way Tillerson was fired, whether he deserved to be gone or not. Um, showed, I, I think, a distressing, the phrase I'm using is lack of class. We're going to talk about that in just a couple minutes. But let's start off with something that is happening tomorrow in Milwaukee area schools, schools across the state, and schools across the country. Um, yet tomorrow at 10 a.m., it's what they call the National School Walkout. And schools... Kids all across the area, all across the state, and all across the country at 10 o'clock will walk out of their classes um, in protest against gun violence and lack of gun control measures, sort of unspecified gun control measures. Now, in some situations, the plan is, oh, the kids are going to walk out for 17 minutes, then they'll walk back into the classroom. In other cases as well, they'll head to the football field, there'll be speeches, etc. In some cases, it's, they're going to board buses and attend rallies. It, it kind of varies. Um, many, many, many school districts have said, all right, well, we're going to treat this as an excused absence. No problem in doing this. All right, so the question that's being raised is, is this is this a game changer? Is it a gimmick? Well, of course, it's it's a gimmick. There, there's no question about that. But I guess the broader question to me is, should schools be permitting this? And essentially saying, we're going to treat this as an excused absence. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here is my point, and feel free to disagree. If students want to protest... 
for gun violence and they want to have against gun violence and they want to attend rallies and they want to argue for gun control, I say go with God. That That's fine. But why do you have to do it at 10 o'clock in the morning? Why don't you do it on your own time? Okay, school ends at 3 o'clock. You want to stage a rally? You want to stage a protest rally? Fine. Do it at 3.05 or do it at 3.15. Do it after the final period. Now, they won't do that because that would be cutting into their time. You know, from the perspective of students having a rally, all right, that would be just as effective, but they don't choose to do it on their own time. They choose to do it when school is in session. I think it is wrong to treat a disruption of the school day as an excused absence. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, if you want to stage a protest, there are plenty of opportunities to do this. Plenty of opportunities to do this. You could do it before school. You could do it, like I say, after school. This is the deal. Ninth period or whatever that is. Bell rings. We are all meeting on the football field or in front of the school, and we're going to sing Kumbaya, and we're going to stage our protest. Fine. Then it's not a problem. But the fact that they are doing it in the middle of the school day, not on their own time, tells me, I think, a little bit about the, well, how... I don't want to say lack of sincerity, because I'm sure some of the protests are sincere. But to treat this as an excused absence, I think, is just fundamentally wrong. If they want to do it, do it on their own time. And I don't, for the life of me, understand all these school officials that have decided we don't want to fight the wave of political correctness. We're going to go along with this. What happens when the next group of people say, hey, we want to stage a protest uh, because we don't like the prices of oil or we don't like this pipeline thing or whatever? Is that then going to be treated? Okay, you walk out too, no problem. And if not, why not? I mean, if you are setting a precedent for walkouts to promote social policies or whatever, who's to say that this cause is more noble than save the whales or don't build the pipeline or whatever 414-799-1620 let's start with kelly and slinger kelly good afternoon hi Jeff. thanks for taking my call yes, ma'am. so i have kind of a unique perspective because i've got kids that are in the slinger district and i've got a husband who is a teacher in a district around milwaukee county i won't say the district but um in wauwatosa <laughs> they are recognizing this they right. are allowing the kids to leave the class and go down to a gym or walk outside um if they leave well there's nothing that they can do about it because they are considering it an excuse absence uh, i'm shaking so, by the way i'm shaking my head behind the microphone here i mean well, well, uh, yeah I was shaking my head, and my husband also shook his head, and he said what I suggested is that if the students want to do this, they do it after school yeah. or they do it on a Saturday. If they feel that strongly about it, yeah. they've got a whole Saturday they can do it. Well, absolutely, that, and that, that's what the, the insanity of this is, Kelly. All right, let, let's say you want to declare, you know, March 14th to be this national stage of protesting. Great. Do it at 3.15. Do it after the final bell. Everybody's there. Let them gather. But the kids don't want to do it then because then it's interfering with their schedule. Hey, you know, we we don't, you know, this is going to stop us from getting home quicker and playing video games or whatever, many of which are probably shoot them up video games. Well, and, and not only that, but what they're allowing the kids to do is they're, they're letting them gather in a gym. Well, then you've got 
you know, the, the half hour before that is disruptive, the entire day is disruptive. Yes. And most of these kids have no clue what they're doing. All they want to do is get out of class. Well, well, right. And and see, and my question would be just kind of like when the NFL pro t- players did their kneel down, what exactly are you protesting? Now, it, it, and that, I'd be curious to just say, all right, you, you, you want more gun control. Okay, tell me what more gun control that you want. And how would this have solved, you know, if you're protesting the violence in Parkland, tell me how this would have solved it. I, I'd love to see these things. But I guess what's the most frustrating to me, Kelly, isn't that the kids want to do it, but it's that the grown-ups, the school administrators uh, in many school districts throughout this area are, are going along with this because, heaven forbid, we should squelch these kids' right to protest. Well, and the interesting thing is that it's not just the city schools. It's the suburbs. Yep. Oh, yeah. Um, there are a lot of suburban schools that are doing this as well, where you would think that they would be very opposed to this. But I think they feel pressured into doing it. Well, right. Exactly. And I guess my question, again, moving forward now, Kelly, is this the, is this the standard? Okay, so this is the National School Walkout Day. But what about the 10 kids that feel strongly about Save the Whales? If they say, okay, we're staging our own protest at 10.05 next Wednesday for Save the Whales, we're walking out and we don't expect there to be consequences. If the school officials have let them do it for this, how how can you not let them do it for Save the Whales or whatever cause that you want to have? Yeah, I don't know where you draw the line. And and that's that's the problem with the administrators is that they are, they're really setting the precedent for this. Right. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. See, and that's, and again, that, that's the thing. I, I understand. Look, I'm a child of the seventies. I get protest, but at the same time, there needs to be consequences if you are going to simply decide, all right, we're going to walk out of class. And, and I, the idea that these administrators have decided to essentially look the other way for this is what I find appalling. And I, I just haven't heard anybody say, all right, why don't you just do it after school? Well, we we can't expect them to do it after school. Well, why not? We continue the conversation next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1218, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1221, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. His line sends me a text. Well, I understand where you're coming from. The point of a protest is to draw attention and to disrupt the status quo in some way. Okay, fine. Then you suffer the consequences. See, that, that that's my point. If you decide you want to walk out of class, all right, fine. There should be some consequences. Unexcused absences, in-school uh, in suspensions, or whatever. But these school districts are now saying, okay, we're going to give our blessing to this. So there are no consequences at all. So you essentially have these schools that are making the decision to say, all right, fine, disrupt the entire day. Where that, that's sure that that's the protest where, you know, no, there's no skin in the game at all. And that's what's wrong that these school districts have decided to give into this. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Steve in Green Bay. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Hey, I really don't have much more to say. This. Your previous call has kind of stole my thunder, and I agree with you. I think 90% of those kids probably have no reason or no idea what to protest if this was planned to get out of class. If they're going to do it, you know, do it after school, and I agree. I think some of the administrators... That's crazy. Some of these schools are elementary schools. What do these kids know anyway? I mean, they should be they, they spending more time about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, Steve, your, your phone's cutting up there. But again, yeah, that's the look. If if you want to if you want to have if you want to protest and you want to have skin in the game, that that's that's fine. I don't see the kids 
I don't know, walking out of basketball games, for example, to protest this. This is an easy sort of thing that's there. And I'm just saying if you're going to do it, well, again, I I believe – the reason that it's been done in this time period is because the school officials are willing to just look the other way to have this done. Ron in Greenfield. Ron, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello there. How are you doing? Sir? Good. What do you think? I think the reason they're doing it during school is to bring attention to it. I think you're doing them a favor, which I'm in favor of, that now it's news on your radio station if it happened after school, before school. It doesn't bring the attention. uh uh-huh. The issue as much. Well, you don't think it would. Well, I mean, you don't think it would if they said, "Hey, um, we're going to, you know, we're going to have huge rallies at, at three fifteen. You don't think that that would get attention? Not as much as it is as it is right mm-hmm. now, because you're the one that's discussing it in prime time here, so to speak. Yep. 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 Do you it think that the school? See, and and I understand if the kids want to walk out, that's one thing. Do you think the school? My bigger beef is that the schools are allowing them to do that. They're giving them cover. Do you think there should be consequences for walking out? No, because they're making a stand that they don't want to get shot in school. We have okay. Sandy Hook and so many others, and it doesn't stop. It, the gun laws in regards to the AR-15s is, is ridiculous mm-hmm. for our country. No one's taking away the Second Amendment. We're talking about semi-automatic so, so you think you, you think this walkout is designed to say that we think that all all ar-15 should be banned and confiscated that's what you think the walkout's about i'm not i'm not saying confiscated i'm saying they should be banned right now we don't even have proper uh background checks okay. you know, there's no fly uh we can't even use the no fly uh oh, okay well Ron, in just the last 15 seconds you you've yeah. just you've just hit on Three or four different very disparate aspects of gun control. I guess my question is, do, do you think these kids that are walking out tomorrow are walking out um, with a, a particular I, I, mindset? Do, do they all want to ban the sale of AR-15s? Do they all want more background checks? Do, do you think that there's that, – or are some just going to be walking out to walk out because they think it's cool? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think it's a vast movement across the country. You're not talking about a small band of kids uh, pocketed somewhere in Wisconsin or Florida. We're talking about across the country. This is an issue. Okay, let me ask you this. So next week, let's say you have 10 kids at Whitefish Bay High School who feel strongly about uh, the environment and don't like the idea that there's going to be a pipeline running through North Dakota. Would they be justified in walking out of class to protest the pipeline in North Dakota? You're talking, you're talking about two apples and oranges. Sir. So your answer would be no? That would no, not be justified. There's, it's not justified because if there's a difference. You're trying to equate, like, uh, save the whales with huh? kids getting killed. I don't know how that's disingenuous. Well, no, it's it's not. I mean, no, it's. I mean, it's 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 not disingenuous at all. I mean, you're you're talking about policy issues. So you know the. You know, you, you've got some kids who are, are going to protest, I don't know, kids getting killed. Now, again, I, I don't understand how, unless you're going to confiscate AR-15s, I, I don't understand how, you know, this protest ties into Parkland. Unless, I mean, background checks, well, I, I don't understand how that ties into Parkland either um, because this, this guy would have passed, you know, background checks. Sh- should he have? That's a whole different story. But, I mean, I guess my point is, are we going to, is it going to be like a little bit pregnant? If you have kids who are, 
legitimately concerned about other social issues, whatever that social issue might be, are they entitled to walk out with no consequence? We continue the conversation next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1227. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1236. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It will be interesting also to see the way these various protests are, are covered tomorrow and um, you know, whether whether or not there's any sort of intense questioning of, of the kids that speak at these different types of things, because, again, I, I I'm, I'm curious as to what the protests are designed to accomplish. What 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 exactly are we we urging here? Is it we, we don't want to sell AR-15s? Is it that we, we want to confiscate the 8 million AR-15s that are already out there? Is it that we want to repeal the Second Amendment? I mean, what what exactly is the purpose of all this stuff? And what is there a consensus? Uh, because I'd be delighted to hear that as somebody who's been talking about this issue for for decades. You know, is it I don't know, locking up more people who clearly have mental illnesses and are prone to perhaps act out violently. I'm just curious as to what the goal is ultimately going to be. The Bucks continue the road trip as they head to the Magic Kingdom. Giannis and company get set to take on Orlando. And Ted Davis gets you ready for the Eastern Conference matchup tomorrow night at 540 right here on WTMJ. All right. Big story number two, Miller Park. Now, Gru, who's producing the, the program. How long have you worked with me? A few months now, right? Okay. You um, you were a young lad when the whole Miller Park debate was going on, correct? All right. Well, I still bear, at least psychically, some of the scars from that. Let me just review the bidding for a minute for people who might not have lived in this area, might have been too young to have lived through the, the whole situation, or um, might have just forgotten. All right. The Brewers at the time were, in all likelihood, they were playing in County Stadium. The old County Stadium was, I guess, for some it was iconic, but candidly, it was a dump. I, I worked at WTMJ for the last couple of years at County Stadium, so I got a chance to, every once in a while to go into the inside. I, it, it's People are lucky that OSHA didn't come over. Because OSHA would have probably closed the place down. I mean, you'd see these leaking pipes and these things. It, it was it county stadium had extended and it, it had it had, had its useful life county stadium you know just it it really it needed either a ton of money put into it or it needed to be torn down the brewers they were in a situation where i, I think they would not have stayed that's just kind of the reality unless they got a new facility there was a huge debate about the facility and how to pay for it um, you had at the time Governor Tommy Thompson who was pushing for this. You had some legislators who were in favor of it. You had a number of legislators who weren't. Bud Selig was, you know, out and about lobbying and he was twisting arms for this. Ultimately, Miller Park got approved by one vote in the state Senate and, uh, the state senator from Racine, um, who ended up flipping his, his vote to cast the the final vote that Miller Park needed, um, he ended up losing his seat in in a recall election on the Miller Park issue. So Miller Park gets built, and the plan was a five-county tax sales tax. So that sales tax um, went into effect, I believe, the tax went into effect since 1996. 
and it's been in effect since 1996. The original plan is it was going to end, it was going to sunset um, in 2014, I believe. Um, well, all right, that has not happened, and the tax continues to be collected. It's only collected in five counties, Milwaukee, Washington, Waukesha, Ozaki, and Racine County. In particular, I think people in surrounding counties, but particularly people in Racine, irate about this. And I can remember doing radio shows at the time because people in Racine were saying, look, we're, we're in Racine. You know, um, yeah, we, it's not that we don't like baseball, but, you know, we don't get any we don't get any benefit from Miller Park. Why should we be paying this sales tax to help, you know, Miller Park? Maybe, you know, hotels in Waukesha benefit a little bit. Hotels in Milwaukee County, restaurants in Milwaukee County, we see that as benefit, but, you know, it doesn't help us in Racine. Well, anyhow, the legislature, you know, went ahead, they passed this, they've now been collecting the sales tax, and the word is that um, if if there's not some major problem, uh, they think that the sales tax will finally, finally um, sunset by... 2000, what's the estimate, 2019 um, or early in 2020. So the tax will be 25 years, essentially. That's if things continue to go. All right, we now have the benefit of hindsight. You know, we've seen what Miller Park has done. We've seen the effect the brewers have had on the area. We've seen the development or lack of development in the Menominee Valley Here's what I want to do, and this is big story number two. I understand this is still a sensitive point with some people, but given the fact that now, again, it's always subject to change, but it looks like the Miller Park sales tax will probably sunset in within the next two years. Two years from now, if everything goes according to plan, there will no longer be that sales tax that's been out there, that point at 0.1% sales tax for the five counties. All right, it's been in effect for 25 years. In retrospect, was it the right thing to do to use public money to build Miller Park? Has it been a success, or would we have been better off if we had done nothing, which would have meant not demolishing County Stadium, it would have meant the Brewers would have left. I mean, I think that's pretty much a certainty. They would have left sometime in the last, you know, 20 years. So we would be without Major League Baseball, but we wouldn't have paid, uh, you know, 0.1% sales tax. So 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We now have the vision, the ability of hindsight. We're not talking about what might have happened. We have seen what has happened Taxpayers have, you know, been paying through that sales tax in the five counties for the last, you know, 20 plus years. We now see light at the end of the tunnel. My question is, do you think it was worth it? I will tell you where I come down on this, but I'm curious as to your reaction. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1244. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1247, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, have a text uh, that challenges me. How do you know the Brewers would have left? There's no guarantee that they would have done that. Well, I, I guess you can argue that, but the, I, I have had personal conversations with um, former team ownership. 
Um, the, the reality is they, they weren't going to stay. And, and I will tell you, this is, again, I, I saw County Stadium. County Stadium was dilapidated. County Stadium was just not in a position to generate the revenue they needed. And I guess, you know, some people, if you want, you can stick your head in the sand and say, oh, they would have still been playing here. That's just not reality. To me, the question isn't would the Brewers have left or not. The Brewers would have left. The Atanasio ownership would not have come in and purchased them if they did not have Miller Park. And I think Mark Atanasio is very clear about that as well. So that's, to me, I think... I, I think that's kind of a straw man argument where they might not have left. I think the reality is they would have left. But that, that does beg the question then. The question is, all right, would we have been better off if the Brewers had left, if you'd never built Miller Park, if County Stadium is now sitting essentially you know, vacant, maybe they're, they're using it for a couple outdoor concerts or something during the summer, but we hadn't had to pay the 0.1% sales tax in all five counties. I mean, that's really what I think the fundamental fair question is. Okay. Jack in Kenosha. Jack, you're first. Good afternoon. Yeah, it's pretty much a no-brainer. I mean, the amount of money really isn't that much. Look at it, right? Well, it's, I mean, 0.1% sales tax. But, yeah, I mean, you know, for each, when you break it down per individual, you know, it's no, it's not going to break any one person. Exactly that. And then look at what it's brought in. And so I mean, Milwaukee's already lost one team. There's no sense of losing another team. So. Right. Now, of course, do you live in Kenosha? Okay, so you're <laughs> that now. Some people I know are screaming at the I radio know, right now, I saying, "Hey, Jack, easy I, for I you did, to say." I, you, I yeah. dig that. I dig that. Yeah. Like, it doesn't hurt people's wallet. Now, if it starts hurting people's wallet, then it's a different story, right? Right, right. That's exactly right. So you don't think you don't think the majority of people have noticed that zero point one percent over the last twenty no. to twenty five years? No, no. Come on, no. Got it. Okay, no. Thanks for calling. No, and again, I'm, I'm just. I don't know if it's playing devil's advocate, but I, I did, you know, Kenosha was outside of the district. Um, it was a tough enough sell getting Racine in there. And, of course, you know, George Petak, who was the state senator who switched his vote, who lost in the recall. Um, you know, George, George Petak was the guy who who really saw how strongly people, particularly people in Racine, felt. Let's talk to Tom in Sockville. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, I have to, uh, with all due respect to your previous caller, he's all wet. Uh, I watch taxes. Uh, maybe he's got more money than I got, mm-hmm. but uh, that's been aggravating me uh, on many fronts. Uh, one is taxation without representation. These people on the uh, Miller Park Board are all appointed, uh, and the way to get around that is they're appointed by people that you've elected, but it's so far removed, it's so far uh, uh Cushion, you don't know even who your people on the board are unless you do some real digging, which I have in the past, but that's changed now. But my uh, my larger point is that it's it's already a done deal, and the brewers are making Boku bucks. They're making just crazy money. Uh, it's time to put that thing away. And it, uh, one reference to your previous caller, what team did we lose? We didn't lose the Bucks. We didn't lose the Brewers. I don't know who he's talking about. Well, he's talking about losing the Braves. Well, that was uh, that was that was twenty years, uh, twenty five years before they built. Uh, uh, that was a that's a totally different issue. That's a totally different issue than what we have now. That that's old history. We have the Brewers now since. What, okay, well, I guess my que- my question though would be. Do you think it was a worthwhile investment? Okay, when we made that decision in 1995, now, you know, it, we're sitting here in 2018 looking back. Do you think it was the right decision to go ahead and build that and fund it by the sales tax? 
Well, I'll tell you, Jeff, uh, and to try not to be disrespectful, but that's like arguing about what the weather was 20 years ago. It's done. I thought we were talking about getting rid of this foolish tax. Well, no, I mean, it's the, the tax, I mean, thanks to, I mean, the tax is going to sunset at some point in time, you, you hope. Um, I think at some point in time, there's some people that were talking about, well, maybe now that people aren't noticing this, maybe we can roll this into a way to fund other sorts of things like improvements in the county or whatever. That to me is a, is a non-starter. No, what I, what I specifically want to focus on is I want to focus on whether or not it, it was a good deal. Um, was this the right decision that people made? Let's talk to Al in Milwaukee. Al, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm just wondering, was it enough to raise, did they raise enough money to pay for it? Because they borrowed, you know, the bonds to build the stadium. Was that tax paid for it? Or we still owe money on it after they stopped the tax? Well, no, it, it will, it will be, that, that will be paid for. No, thanks for, see, that, that's the idea. The, the sales tax funds, there was originally $290 million in construction debt plus interest for the stadium. In addition, there have been other improvements that the sales tax has been used for. Off the top of my head, I, I don't know, I, I, I don't know how much the sales tax is raised. So, I mean, I don't know whether it's $300 million or $350 million. I can't tell you that right off the top of my head. But I, I do know that if things go as projected, the debts will be in a position to be retired, which is one of the things that they are, are, are doing. Um, I, I will say this. I just, if you accept my premise, and obviously some people don't, but if you accept my premise that the brewers would have left, I, I look at Miller Park, I look at what's gone on in the last 20 years, I look at the value, I think, of having a, a Major League Baseball team here, I look at the positive things that the um, Atanasio ownership group has done, and, and if you're asking me, do I think Milwaukee is a better place? Do I think Milwaukee County is better? Do I think the region is better? Do I think the state is better? Yeah, I said state, because you know you have a Major League Baseball team here. My answer would be yes. And I don't like taxes either. I, I, I don't. But I, I think on balance, I think it's been a good deal. We continue the conversation next. 1254, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1257, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The estimates are that on average, to pay for Miller Park, the sales tax costs residents in each of the five counties 11 bucks a year. Now, that's on average. Since it's a sales tax, for some people, it might be 15 or 20 or $25 a year. For other people, it might be 5 But the average is $11 uh, a year. Barb in Greendale. Barb, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Full disclosure first, I do have a 20-pack season ticket. I bought one this year for the first time. I broke okay. down and bought one first time. So I'm looking forward to it. It's a wonderful thing. You have to think about all of the jobs that this has created for Miller Park. You've had major concerts come in. People go to these concerts. They stay in hotels. They go out to restaurants. They stop at a bar and have a couple of drinks, maybe before and after. Mm-hmm. You have people working in the stadium, per se, that are putting on the concerts. You have different, you know, the brewers have different promotions throughout the year. It brings in people from all over the Midwest because we have a premier venue now. You don't have some crap that's, oh, my God, it's going to fall down, and you look up and you see water dripping from a pipe wondering if it's toxic or not. You have right. a world-class facility. We should be thankful. Right. So now, and, and I will freely admit, Barb, that, that maybe it could have gone another way if, if you – 
didn't have the ownership group that you have for the brewers or if you didn't have the management you had that's been able to, you know, find the other uses, the concert and the things like you're talking about, maybe this could have gone the other way. But that's why I agree with you. Looking back in hindsight, I think it was and I think it was a good investment. I think it's tough to argue that the community isn't and you can define community however you want. The the region is not better off because we have Miller Park. And yeah, do I think it's worth eleven bucks on average a year from so residents of the five counties? I'm there. You, you these people that oh my god, you know it, it's busting me. Well, we shouldn't have that. Well, you know you may have a son or daughter that's out of work, and they may end up at Miller Park being working for the Brewers. Right. You know, I mean, come on. No. Okay, good enough. Thanks, Nicole. I, I, I agree. I, now, by the way, I'm also glad to see that there's finally I, – I, my big beef with a lot of these taxes and fees is that once they get put into place, they never go away. I think it is important for this to sunset, and the sooner it goes away, I think the better it's going to be. But was it worth it to get that facility built? My answer would be yes. It's 1259. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner. So, Eric, yes, you ever been fired? Yes. Okay. Um, when you were interesting, when you were fired? <laughs> no. I, I, when you were fired, were you fired in person? In other words, did the person who fire you call you in and say, mm-hmm. you're, "Yeah, you're gone." You, so you were fired in person. Mm-hmm. Didn't necessarily make it any better, I would imagine, but it, no, but, but at least, but at least the, whoever it was, you know, told you you were being let go. Right. I didn't read it on Twitter. You did not find out about it on Twitter. Gru, who's producing the show, have you ever been fired? You've been fired, too. I've never been fired. At least not yet. <laughs> you, know, yeah, yeah, you never still, know. You know. Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? Oh, okay. There's still right. There's still time. <laughs> yeah, will, you, will, yeah, will, will you retire before this happens? Okay, Gru, when you were fired, when you were fired, were you called in and fired in person? You were called in and fired in person. Okay. You didn't, like find out about it through third parties or anything like that. All right. Again, it didn't make it easier for that to happen, but did you at least respect the fact that they called you and told you that? Yeah, a little bit, but the person that fired you was a miserable whatever, right? Okay. All right. Okay. I understand. Okay. Well, thank you guys for sharing. I I bring this up because if you serve as a cabinet, if you serve the president of the United States and in perfect, in any capacity, you serve at the pleasure of the president, right? And that's certainly true at the cabinet level. If you are the secretary of the state or the attorney general, you, you serve at the pleasure of, of the president. And the president can get rid of you for any reason or, or no reason at all. If the president wakes up one day and decides, I don't like the color socks that this person is wearing, and they want to get rid of them, that's the president's prerogative. That, that's, that's the nature and you know that when you you sign up. Now, I bring this up because the breaking news this morning was that Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, who was the former uh, CEO at, at ExxonMobil, who um, left that position to, be, to take on the job as Secretary of State, he was let go this morning by President Trump. Now, the reports are that um, he was not told in person by President Trump that he was being let go. He, he was told by um, the chief of staff that, you know, we, we need you to cut short a trip and, and come back, and there, there's going to be some information coming out that could concern you. 
that, that could be of concern to you. Um, that would be meaning it would be affecting you. And then I guess that information was the tweet that President Trump put out this morning announcing his new choice to be Secretary of State, the CIA director, you know, Mike uh, Pompeo, and also saying, I, I want to thank Rex Tillerson for, you know, his, his service. So he found out by a presidential tweet that he was being let go. Now, Rex Tillerson has been on a different page from Donald Trump since pretty much the beginning. And so I, I guess, you know, there, there's been sort of a countdown clock. How long will Tillerson last? It's not necessarily a surprise to me that he was let go. I, I will say this. I think, and the word I'm going, the words I'm going to use is no class. I, I think it's a no class move to fire somebody via tweet. I think somebody who's left private service and, and come and worked for you for 14 months, even if you don't like the job they're doing, even if you're not on the same wavelength, even if you haven't connected, even if you're wearing socks that the person doesn't like, I, I think, I, I guess you're at least entitled to be, be whistled in and said, okay, thanks for your service. I appreciate this. I'm, I'm letting you go, as opposed to finding out via tweet, which even though it's probably not a surprise, I mean, there's been, I mean, there's been speculation for a long time that Tillerson wouldn't last. The only um, sitting cabinet member that there's probably even more speculation about is Jeff Sessions, who President Trump uses as a whipping boy on a regular basis. And I'm the guy who's argued that if I were Jeff Sessions, you know, after being publicly berated by the president, I would have walked in a long time ago and said, Mr. President, I'm sorry. Apparently, I've lost your trust. Here's my letter of resignation. Now. Again, the president gets to make these different decisions, but it's the way he went about it that kind of caught my attention. Now, now, bear with me. There is I, I, these are some names that maybe you will remember, maybe you won't. Of course, um, Rex Tillerson. He he was fired. That's what happened. I mean, he was fired today. Um, last week, March sixth, there was Gary Cohen. He was the head of the National Economic Council. Um, he was one of the guys who was arguing against tariffs. And pretty much lost that debate, so he announced that he is resigning. Hope Hicks, White House communications director and one of the kind of original Trump confidants, she announced that she's going to be leaving her job. Um, Josh Raffel, he's the White House deputy communications director. He announced that he is going to be leaving. Rob Porter, he was the White House staff secretary, very uh, close confidant of President Trump. He was... Um, essentially walked out after domestic abuse allegations. Um, Amaraso Newman, she was the crazy woman who the president got to know during the whole um, uh, apprentice thing and gave her a job. Um, the list kind of goes on. Uh, Dina, pa- Dina Powell, she was the deputy national security director. Um, you know, she she's left. Steve Bannon, he was the Trump chief strategist. You know, he left. Anthony Scaramucci, um, not necessarily the best hire, but he was the um, communications director. He stepped down after 11 days. Reince Priebus, who has been a guest on this show, former you know head of the Republican National Committee, the original chief of staff, he's gone. Sean Spicer, the press secretary, he's gone. James Comey, the head of the FBI, 
Michael Flynn, the original national security um, advisor, you know, he was gone after reports that he had misled officials. Um, and, and the list goes on and on. There's at least another like eight or nine prominent people in prominent positions in the White House who, after being hired by President Trump, left. Just they were fired. They left. Whatever. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. Now, we can talk about policy aspects and all those different types of things. But the bottom line is the president gets to hire whoever he wants to hire. And the president gets to fire whoever he wants to hire, whoever he wants to fire. No problem with that at all. That's what comes with the job. But what I find to be very interesting is in this administration, more so than other administrations, you've got a revolving door. You have um, people in high positions who it seems like they're just falling like fire cordwood. I mean, it's just one after another after another. And it seems like, okay, who's going to lose their job or who's going to walk out the door today? Now, President Trump says he likes chaos. President Trump says he likes people to be on edge. Here is my question for you. With this constant turnover, is this any way to run a government? Does this interfere with the president's ability to be a good policymaker? Does this reflect on the type of boss he is? Or is this the way we want to run a government? Essentially, all right, you're here today. You may, in fact, be gone tomorrow. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And let me just give you something to think about going in, into the break. Imagine your own situation. Imagine where you work. If you had this type of constant turnover in high-level positions, would that be an environment that you would want to work in? 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I guess this is style, but it's also substance. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. Would you want to work for President Trump? And is this constant turnover bad for the country? We discuss next. It's 117, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 119, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I just don't think this revolving door at the White House is good for the country. I I, I just don't. Rex Tillerson being the, the latest guy to be let go. He's speaking. Let's just dip in, and then we'll be back with your call. So if you're on the line, please hold on. Oops. Beside you, 18 months. Importantly, to the 300-plus million Americans, thank you for your devotion to a free and open society, to acts of kindness towards one another, to honesty and the quiet hard work that you do every day to support this government with your tax dollars. All of us, we know, want to leave this place as a better place for the next generation. I'll now return to private life as a private citizen, as a proud American, proud of the opportunity I've had to serve my country. God bless all of you. God bless the American people. God bless America. Outgoing That's uh, Rex Tillerson just kind of saying his goodbyes. I just, look, I, I understand that some people like the chaos type of thing. And if it was just Rex Tillerson, it would be one thing. He and Trump never, never clicked. Um, he, he was a, I don't want to say he was a bad choice for Secretary of State, 
but he and the president never mesh. So he was a bad choice to be this president's secretary of state. But it's it's not just Tillerson. It, it's one guy or one woman after another who are leaving. Let's talk to Bob in Waukesha. Bob, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I really appreciate it. I, I, you know, I, I, I really, I'm growing weary of people saying uh, he was elected, get over it. Uh, this is not an issue of Democrat versus Republican. This is an issue of our country. And, and his paranoia, his narcissism, uh, it, uh, I'm really concerned about this meeting between he and, and, or whomever and he and uh, Kim Jong-un. Well, that is, it is an interesting thing that you, you've got the, these meetings that are coming up and you have the Secretary of State who's been on board for 14 months who's now gone and, and you hope to have this Mike Pompeo in. But, you know, who knows? I mean, he's a CIA director, but, you know, who knows Who knows how up to speed he's going to be? Well, Rick, Rex Tillerson thought that these negotiations would be a good idea. Donald Trump at some point said, no, you're wasting your time. Now, where does he stand now? I mean, uh, he flip-flops so much, it's it, it's mm-hmm. incredible. Well, I mean, it is, it is sort of difficult to decide. I mean... I mean, last week it was, you know, Cohen who had, had been arguing against tariffs and he just, he sort of lost that argument. So now, you know, he's gone. Um, 414-799-1620. Now, some people, I think, like this management style. Um, here's a text. I respect this type of turnover. I respect this type of turnover and do not like complacency. It's expensive to have people running the country in various positions. Let's make sure they're doing the right job. Well, all right. I guess my response to that would be, if you have turnover, um, what does it say about the person that's making the hiring decision? Because it, it's expensive to keep having to replace people over and over again. So if you let, let's say that Rex Tillerson was the wrong guy for secretary of state, just for the sake of argument. All right. What does that say about the person who decided to make him the secretary of state? Let's say Reince Priebus was the wrong guy to be the chief of staff. Well, what does it say about the decision of who hired him? If you're if you have this turnover, does that reflect on your decision making as the executive? If you have a boss and again, this is. I understand that running the country is different than perhaps other stuff, but if you work in a situation where there's constant turnover and managers are walking out of the door or bosses are walking out of the door constantly, is that is that the most productive environment that's there? 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Ralph in West Bend. Ralph, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, With relation to President Trump, Number one, he is a wheeler-dealer businessman. He is used to doing things his way, his style, and um, he doesn't have to worry about anything else. I don't think he realized the complexity of what he has to live with with the job he has Mm -hmm. now. He's right. Not. Or the limitations on the job. Um, to your point, OK, you you have the attorney general of the United States. And I think he's frustrated that, hey, I can't tell the, att- the attorney general here. He, he appoints a special counsel. I mean, the, the attorney general, it, it's not like he's a vice president of Trump International. He's the attorney general. So he's got other obligations as well. And I think the president chafes at that. 
um, and I, I agree with you with that assessment. The problem is he can't handle it himself because of the political situation. The press, the Senate, the House, mm-hmm. all of the things that go with this government job he has. He can't do things the way he, A, used to, right. and I'm sure would like to. Yeah, that's funny. Thanks for funny. That's, that's, that happens to a lot of, uh, that happens to a lot of people in that job. Okay, we're going to continue the conversation in just a minute. The revolving door continues to turn. It's 125. This is Jeff Wagner. 128, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Vincent on the Northwest Side. Vincent, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, I, I, I think this is outrageous. Uh, the fact is, how can foreign governments and foreign officials trust that the individual that they're talking to today or making a deal with today is going to be there tomorrow? <laughs> the, the fact is, there's something, to, there's something to say about continuity. The fact is, when, 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 when staff comes in, how do they know that when, when, when they're, they're, they're trying to put together a plan, that this plan is going to be carried forward, and, and I don't know who's going to be in, in the office in the, the next day. I, 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 this is unprecedented in, in American history. This government needs to stand for something, and the presidency needs to stand for something. And, and I think everybody is kind of confused right now, from from from, from Americans to to, to to foreign foreign officials and, and foreign government. Well, I do think you get the sense, and I, and I think it's fair. I mean, the, the president talks about how he thrives in chaos. I don't know, and maybe maybe that's a great way to run a real estate company. I, I don't know. I've never run a real estate company. I'm not sure it's a great way to run the country. For and look, and I understand, Vincent, that there's there's always going to be there's going to be turnover. People, you know, burn out in the jobs, or they decide they don't like it, and that that's always going to happen. But it does seem to me that the revolving door with the Trump administration has been a lot worse than certainly other administrations that I can think back on. Yes, and the fact is, how can a person get experience? These these are people coming from the private sector, and they're there because supposedly they have they have some some expertise in trying to run in, in the kind of position that they have. But how can they how can they continue to get experience in this and and oh, in yeah. a particular job? And they and, and they got to figure out, am I going to be here? Well, right, exactly. I mean, thanks for calling. And again, I mean, maybe you think Jeff Sessions is doing a lousy job as the Attorney General. I, by the way, don't agree with that assessment. Maybe you think Rex Tillerson did a lousy job as you know Secretary of State. Well, okay, that that's fine. But then, what does it say about the person that made the hiring decision? One thirty-six, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. You know, the, one of the things that's interesting about President Trump is, is the way people perceive him is just so completely different. Depending on your political views and whether you're a Trump supporter or not, I have, an, I have a text here from you know one of our listeners, a regular listener. Donald Trump is doing just fine. He's not a liberal or conservative. He's a pragmatist. He uses straightforward, matter-of-fact approach and doesn't let emotion distract him. He sees a problem, fixes it, and does not compound it with more problems. I want to go back to part of this. He he doesn't let emotion distract him. I don't know what Donald Trump, this particular listener, is looking for. I mean, this is the Donald Trump that flies into, and again, good or bad, but this is the Donald Trump that is obsessed with, you know, watching news and flies 
flies into rages when some obscure late night comic makes a joke and and then you're off on this Twitter war. I mean, doesn't let emotion distract him. No, I mean, I I think candidly, and this is what I talk about when I I say the difference between Trump's style and the the substance. I mean, I I think the style is is candidly he's flying across off the handle all the time. He he's just a giant ball of emotion who gets Angry, I'd use another word, but I'll just say it gets angry at the slightest sort of, you know, thing where most people would just kind of ignore it and say, hey, I won and let water, you know, run off their back. I think President Trump flies into rages and things like that. And I think it it does. That's part of the problem. I think he lets emotion distract him. And I think candidly, if he could get rid of that, that ability and he's 72 years old, he's not going to change. I think it would be more effective. All right. Now, speaking of emotion, that leads me into the next topic. Um, over, there's a big special election in president in, in Pennsylvania today. Um, there, the, the candidate, this is, it's a district, a congressional district that President Trump won by double digits. All right. It should be an easy Republican win, and yet the polls, and again, I understand some people don't believe the polls, but the polls polls have it extremely close. If the Democrat challenger wins this seat, it will set off all sorts of alarm bells all across the country for other GOP candidates who are running. The argument will be, Look, Donald Trump won this this district big in 2016, and now you have you know a Trump Republican who gets drubbed if that happens um, in in Pennsylvania. I I don't know enough about this particular district to make a prediction one way or the other, but I it's it is going to be at least everybody suggests it's going to be a very very close race. Well, anyhow. Over the weekend, President Trump is in Pennsylvania ostensibly to do this rally in support of the candidate. Now, President Trump gives a 75-minute speech. He doesn't mention the congressional candidate till 60 minutes in. But it's one of these typical, you know, President Trump campaign rallies where he's working on the teleprompter. And I think, just like with the State of the Union address, I think he's great when he uses the teleprompter and he, he sticks to the script. But what happens is he gets caught up in the moment of the rally and stuff, and he starts going off script, and then he says all sorts of, of things. One of the things he said is that he believes that people who sell drugs, drug dealers, should get the death penalty. Um, at this rally, and here's the way the story was reported in USA Today, drug dealers kill people, destroy families, and might deserve the death penalty, said President Trump. Um, he said, look, the criminal justice system is too soft on drugs. You kill 5,000 people with drugs because you're smuggling them in and you're making a lot of money and people are dying and they don't even put you in jail. That's why we have a problem, folks. I don't think we should play around. Trump said he recently asked the president of Singapore if Singapore has a drug problem. Hmm. Now, let me just stop right here for a second. And this comes from the perspective of somebody who served in the United States Department of Justice under President Reagan and under the first President Bush. So I, I'm I'm death on dealing drugs and I'm I'm about as tough on crime as it can get. At the same time, I'm not sure that even I would feel comfortable talking to people in Singapore, you know, which is where they did the caning and stuff, 
about, you know, what 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 parts of the Singapore justice system should we bring to the United States? But anyhow, the president says, I talked to the president of Singapore, asked if that country has a drug problem. He said, we have a zero tolerance policy. That means if we catch a drug dealer, death penalty. Um, Trump said he wasn't sure whether the United States would be accepting of such a harsh penalty, but he said drug dealers destroy families. We can't just start setting up blue ribbon committees and do nothing but talk, 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 talk. Um, less than two weeks ago, he suggested a very strong penalty. He said some countries have a very, very tough penalty, the ultimate penalty. And by the way, they have much less of a drug problem than we have here. Last May, Trump congratulated Filipino President Rodrigo Duarte for a great job in his crackdown on drugs. Duarte had boasted about personally shooting and killing at least three crime suspects. Human rights groups said the United Nations and the United Nations have condemned the uh, vigilante style campaign that's left thousands of suspected drug dealers and users dead. Um, Trump acknowledged Saturday that his idea might have some dissenters. Probably they'll have some people who say, oh, that's not nice, but we have to do something. All right. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, I spent uh, a number of years kind of in the front lines on the war of drugs back in the 80s and the early 1990s when we had the explosion of, of, of cocaine and then later on crack cocaine. And nobody appreciates more than me. The, the impact that this fascination we have in this country with drugs has on destroying families and destroying people's lives. And I'm one of the guys who for years and years has kind of fought this notion that, well, you know, we've got too many people that are locked up in prison for drugs and drugs is a victimless crime and things like that. And I, I fully supported mandatory minimum penalties for dealing drugs and believe that we should have more of that. But let's tee this up. The death penalty for people who deal drugs. Would you be in favor of that? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And lest there be any doubt, you're, I, I'm a guy who supports the death penalty. I, I I believe that the death penalty, I don't know if it's a deterrent or not, but I think it is appropriate punishment. I don't believe that we are ready as a nation, nor would it be advisable to use the death penalty for people who sell drugs. I think there's other more appropriate ways. But the president says maybe we should look at this. In Singapore, they've got the ultimate penalty. They put drug dealers to death. What do you think? 414-799-1620. We discuss next. It's 143. This is Jeff Wagner. 147, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Now, you are listening to a pro-death penalty former narcotics prosecutor. But in in this country, we can't get serial killers that are put to... We can't put serial killers to death. I mean, that's that's part of the thing. You've got the states that do have capital punishment. You've got lengthy waiting periods on death row. And these are for people that took other people's lives with extenuating circumstances, aggravating factors. President Trump is now saying he thinks that we should start. We should follow the model of Singapore That's what they do in Singapore. We should start looking at countries like that to solve our drug problem, including it's the ultimate penalty, the death penalty. Do you support this? And I will tell you, when President Trump said this at the rally the other night, it it probably was his largest applause line of the evening. Andrew in Bayside. Andrew, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey. Hi. How are you? Good. What do you think? Um, So, you know, 
who are these like big drug dealers that are uh, you know behind this opioid crisis right now? Is kind of what you have to ask yourself. And um, I think we all know the answers. Uh, you know, big pharmaceutical companies and these doctors that are getting incentives to prescribe these highly addictive medications. And, um, you know, you could go in for with tonsillitis and come out with a, a, a very strong prescription. And, you know, weeks later, you're, you're very addicted to these things. And um, who, so who are, who's the real big drug dealer here? And how are you going to um, hand out a death sentence? I think that is just, uh, that'll never happen. I think that's pretty, uh, pretty out there, but. You know, wait, I, wait, who is the, no, I, I get what, I mean, thanks. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. You've got the opioid crisis and I don't, I, I, I can pretty much guarantee you that President Trump isn't talking about pharmaceutical companies and doctors who prescribe opioids. President Trump is talking about, I guess, people who are responsible for, you know, smuggling opium or heroin into the country. But I guess where, where do you end up drawing the line? I mean, are, if you have, if you have the drug dealer in Whitefish Bay, who sells some heroin to somebody and that person uses the heroin and then overdoses and dies, it, it, are, are, do we, as a society, do we say that we're going to put that, that person to death? What about a situation where you have two people who are, who are heroin users? Gru and I are heroin users in my completely out of this world hypothetical example. And, um, he goes out, it happen, he happens to know somebody that's selling some heroin that night. Three nights ago, I knew somebody and we bought it. He goes out and buys it, comes back, I use it, he gives it to me, I use it, I die. Okay, does Gru get the death penalty in a situation like that? I mean, where do you end up, you know, drawing, drawing the line on this? Mike in New Berlin. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, how are you? Very well, thank you. Death penalty for dope dealers? Yeah, you know, I'm a supporter of the death penalty, but I don't think... The death penalty for dope dealers is the right answer. I would go more of the line of life in prison with solitary confinement where they know they're never getting out. They're stuck in a little hole thinking about their actions the rest of their life. I think that'll drive them more nuts than the easy way out of being put to death. Well, I, you know, I, I'll tell you, I mean, thanks to call, Mike. I mean, I, you're, you're talking to somebody who... I, I, I just, I admit when I hear all these people saying, oh, it, it's not a criminal justice matter. It's a, it, it's just a social crisis and we need to treat this as a medical thing. Well, okay, but there's a lot of people who sell drugs because it's an easy way to make money. I have no sympathy for people who peddle this poison. I, I don't. And I'm a guy who believes there should be mandatory minimum penalties. And I mean, I worked in a federal syst- system where there was. I mean, you, you sell, Certain quantities of drugs, and yes, you go to prison five years, ten years, fifteen years without parole, and, and you serve long periods. And if that means we got to build more prisons, I'm cool with that. I don't, I don't have a problem with it. I'm just, I think the punishment has to fit the crime, though. And, and like I say, if we're going to start with the death penalty, help me clear off death row. Let us start with dealing with again the people who are are killing other people with all these extenuating circumstances and, and let's let's deal with the drug stuff otherwise. And I guess the reason I bring this up, what's kind of and it is one of the frustrations I have about the current administration, because I, I think the president he throws out the these ideas 
without necessarily thinking through what the ramifications of these things are going to be. And they, they get applause lines and people go back and say, yeah, this is great. Well, look, I, again, my perspective on this situation, it, it's just th- this is this is kind of Looney Tunes to suggest you know, death penalty, and and you know, what are we? What are we going to do? Are we really going to start rounding up the people that are, you know, selling the drugs on the streets and start putting them all to death? I mean, really, Lamar, who is calling us from Orlando, Lamar, hello. Hey, Jeff. Always a great show, and thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling, sir. Um, crazy idea, ridiculous idea, and a couple examples come to mind. Number one, the number of people that the Innocence Project has gotten off of death. Death row for crime they did not commit. Um, I think I think that our criminal justice system is under. Uh, it doesn't have the resources. It's under resourced. So we have a ton of police officers on the street, but those that are charged with doling out justice properly, the courts. You know this. I don't think they have enough resources to do what we currently have. Um, and number two, there have been numerous examples of you know young people that have sold drugs. And have turned their lives around. You know, rap mogul Jay-Z comes to mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know several, you know, people that I grew up with that started that horrible life. And, you know, did, did some time, got out, got their lives together, and have totally turned their lives around. And these people, under the Trump suggestion, would have been executed. And I just think, I think that that's just ludicrous. Well, right, yeah. I mean, and look, and I, and I don't think either one of us are downplaying the, the impact of drug dealing on a community. And I am all in favor of... Harsh. You might even want to use the word draconian penalties. But I mean, it seems to me you save things like the death penalty for I I don't know. You you save it for the Charles Mansons of the world. I mean, that that's who you apply it to. You know, not a guy who's, you know, selling small quantities of cocaine on the street. And I'm not defending selling small quantities of cocaine on the street. But that's not a death penalty case to me. And I have a quick question for you. Isn't isn't. Aren't death row inmates the most expensive inmates? Oh, sure. Because they have they have automatic uh, appeals processes, sure. and aren't they the most expensive? How expensive would this be if you started? You know, a war on drugs that included a death penalty. Oh, well, right. I mean, right. Exactly. I mean, thanks for calling, Lamar. I mean, it, it would be to me. This is again. It's in some respects. It it reminds me of like some of the president's applause lines when it comes to immigration, where he's talking about. Let's get all the people that are in this country illegally. Let's round them up and, and send them back. And I, I understand. Say, I've always understood the argument about, hey, Jeff, what part of illegal don't you get? I, I get it. But also, I live in this thing called the real world. And let us assume most of the numbers that we see out there say there's about 11 million people that are in this country illegally. Okay. All right. I'm just telling you, we, we don't have enough immigration courts. We don't have enough um, immigration agents. You don't have enough prosecutors. You don't have Im- enough immigration judges. Um, you, you don't. What are you going to do? You can't physically just catch 11 million people. It, it's impossible. So my argument has always been, okay, let, let's figure out of that 11 million people, let's figure out the people who are causing the problems. Like the guy was talking about yesterday in, in Denver, who's been in this country several times after being deported, continues to commit crimes and, and then gets released back out on the street to commit more crimes. Let, why don't we start with identifying those people? Figure out how to get them out of the country. Let's start with the first half a million or a million or whatever the number is. I 
I don't know. But let's concentrate on the people that are the problem first and then see where we, we go. That's kind of the, the practical aspect of this for me. And, and, but I understand it sounds better as an applause line, but sometimes it just, it doesn't make sense in this thing, like I say, that we call the real world. It's 156. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 207. This is Jeff Wagner. Yeah, Insight is coming up. It's two weeks from tomorrow. Um, WTMJ.com. You see Jeff Wagner's Insight 2018. I, I, I'd love to see you there. I, I would. It's always a, it's a great event, and it's your chance to see the people that maybe you see on television or you hear on the radio or maybe you've been at, at a rally. Well, this is your chance to see them up close in kind of a one-on-one setting, and we've got just a, a dynamite lineup and people from the world of politics and some other stuff as well. Uh, Governor Walker is going to be our headliner. We're going to spend several segments with him talking about his career and, you know, where where he sees Wisconsin going over the next uh, several years. You've got two Republicans who have announced that they are running for the U.S. Senate seat. Kevin Nicholson, um, who maybe you haven't had a chance to meet before, he's going to be there in person. We're going to have a video interview with Lydia, uh, with Lydia, with Leah Vukmir. So that'll be real interesting. The state Supreme Court race, and I do intend to talk more about this over the next three weeks. Um, that election is going to be the Tuesday after Insight. What is that? Like April 2nd or 3rd, one of the two. It's a Tuesday after Insight. And um, we're going to have the conservative candidate, Michael Skrenick. I invited his opponent. She uh, passed um, to, to talk about this race. The Supreme Court race is, is very, very important. Right now, there is a five to two split, a conservative majority. Um, one of the conservatives, Michael Gableman, is retiring. So this is a situation and this is a seat that I tell you, the liberals and, and the Democrats have made no choice. I mean, th- this is. Uh, Rebecca Dallet is the candidate of choice for the Democratic Party, um, if not formally endorsed, this informal thing. Um, there's a push to this. Typically, liberal jurists do not win state Supreme Court seats in Wisconsin. But I think there's this hope there that maybe, you know, Republicans are going to be disillusioned. Conservatives are going to be disillusioned. They'll stay home. There's an enthusiasm gap. And that might sweep one of these liberals into office. I, I I don't know, um, but you're going to have a chance to hear from the conservative judge, uh, Michael Skrenick, and we're going to talk about his philosophy of the law and things like that. Kathleen O'Leary is going to be there um, from Wisconsin State Fair. We're going to talk about the future of the Milwaukee Mile. Attorney General Brad Schimmel. We're also going to have um, Congressman Glenn Grothman committed already. We're going to have him committed. That's not what I mean, Glenn. We're, he is committed to be there now. We're going to be talking about what's going on in Congress, um, working on adding even another couple more guests to kind of, um, and we'll see where that all goes. But it's going to be a lot of fun. Doors open at 6, event starts at 6.30. We should be done by 8.30, quarter to 9. So, I mean, it, it's, it runs that course. You can pick up tickets at WTMJ.com. And, again, I hope to see you there. All right. She just can't help herself. And, and, you know, do you ever know people in your life that they just, their lives, for whatever reason, are, are train wrecks and it's train wrecks of their own making. They cannot help themselves. When people come to me and ask me to try to explain the 2016 presidential election, how did Donald Trump get, get elected? I, I always say, well, there were some people that just, you know, really, 
love President Trump, now President Trump, because they saw him on Celebrity Apprentice, and they love the, the tough-talking businessman aspect of things like that. But I said that's a factor. But I think the bigger factor is the American people just did not like Hillary Clinton. Now, I understand I'm generalizing, and there are some people out there that maybe have just loved Hillary Clinton, but I think just in general... I think just in general, people were not into Hillary Clinton. She'd been on the political stage for a long time, and candidly, she was not beloved for a variety of reasons. And, you know, for some of us, it goes back to, you know, the Clinton years where, you know, she decided she was going to be the informal health care czar, and you had Hillary Care and those type of things that she was pushing, and then it was... Okay, when, you know, her husband gets in trouble for various things, it's the vast right-wing conspiracy that's out there. You know, and she sounded like Captain Quigg in the movie The Cane Mutiny, you know, the old Humphrey Bogart movie, where all, you know, the only thing that she's missing is, like, marbles that she's shaking in her hand or something like that, you know, talking about the conspiracy. Well, during the campaign, I mean, the, the real Hillary came out on many occasions. You will remember, I think, in retrospect, I don't know if it would change anything, but I think everybody pretty much agrees that it was a it was a gaffe. She's at a fundraiser in September. The election was in November, and she's again it's you can just tell she's it's a fundraiser in New York City for, you know, her, her liberal friends are there, and she starts talking about Donald Trump's supporters. And this was this was the basket of deplorables. I mean, her line was, you know, to just be grossly generalistic, you could put half of Trump's supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables, right? The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. And unfortunately, there are people like that, and he has lifted them up. She said the other half of Trump supporters feel that the government has let them down and are desperate for change. Those are the people we have to understand and emphasize with as well. But her thinking is, of the people who support Trump, half of them, one out of every two, is in the basket of deplorables. Okay, so if you and your spouse support Trump, okay, one out of the two of you is in the basket of deplorables. You're racist, you're sexist, you're homophobic, you're xenophobic, you're Islamophobic, blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, that, that, that didn't work out very well. Well, Hillary hasn't given up on the whole concept of the basket of deplorables. She was in India over the weekend, and she gave another speech. And interestingly enough, time has not healed all wounds, because in the eyes of many, that basket of deplorables got opened up again. Here, here's what she, she talked of. This is what she said. Now, this is Hillary over the weekend. If you look at the map of the United States, there's all that red in the middle where Trump won. I won the coast. I win, you know, Illinois, Minnesota, places like that and the coast. Um, But what the map doesn't show you is that I won the places that represent two thirds of America's gross domestic product. So I won the places that are optimistic, diverse, dynamic, and moving forward. I won the places that are optimistic, diverse, dynamic, and moving forward. So in other words, you people in Michigan and Wisconsin that voted for Trump and Pennsylvania, 
you're all backward people. Um, that's you know you're you're kind of well. I mean, she didn't say losers, but that's sort of the implication. Then she went on. She's turned to Trump voters. She said, and his whole campaign, "Make America Great Again," was looking backward. You know, you didn't like black people getting rights. You don't like women, you know, getting jobs. You don't want to, you know, see that American Indian succeeding more than you are. You know, whatever your problem is, I'm going to solve it. That, that's Trump. So her theory is Trump voters, first of all, you know, she carried the coasts, and that's where all of America's growth is. The Everybody else that lives in flyover country, well, you're just backward. And then, all right, um, you know, the people who were Trump supporters, you don't like black people getting rights. You don't like women getting jobs. You don't want that American Indian succeeding more than you are. Whatever your problem is, that's it. Then she goes on because, you know, um, she had problems with white women voters. So she said white women voters caved to ongoing pressure to vote the way your husband, your boss, your son, whoever believes you should. All right, so this is kind of, I mean, this is like the basket of deplorables, and then let's put more stuff in it. Essentially, she carried the coast, which are where the people that are really productive in this country live. And, you know, if you live anywhere else, well, yeah, you voted for Trump. Um, if you voted for Trump, um, you don't like black people getting rights, you don't like women getting jobs, you don't want that American Indian succeeding. And then if you're a white woman and you voted for Trump, it's because... Well, your husband, your boss, your son, some other guy, a male, was able to coerce you into doing this, and you just kind of succumbed. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I swear I don't make this stuff up. All right, Hillary Clinton, sore loser, opening up the basket of deplorables, or is she on to something? Is, are all the people that voted for Trump just racist and backwards? If you're a white woman particularly who voted for Donald Trump, was it simply to appease your domineering husband or your boss or whatever? If you voted for Trump, is it because you don't like black people, you don't like women getting jobs? Um, or is Hillary just, has she completely and totally lost touch with reality? 414-799-1620. We discuss next. It's 217. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, so Hillary Clinton reopens this weekend in India the basket of deplorables comment. She says that the people who voted for Trump, well, they, they were kind of from flyover country. Um, she carried the coasts, which is where all America's gross domestic product is. Um, she won the places that are optimistic, diverse, dynamic, moving forward, meaning, I don't know, us folks in Wisconsin, we're, we're not that because we didn't vote for Hillary. She said, all right, Trump's campaign was backward looking. You supported Trump. You didn't like black people getting rights. You didn't like women getting jobs. You didn't want to see the American Indian succeeding more than you are. White women who voted against her. Well, it's not because you have a mind of your own. If you're a white woman who voted for Trump, she thinks you cave to ongoing pressure to vote that way that your husband, your boss, your son, whatever believes you should. So I don't know. You just kind of you were that um, you just pulled the lever because your husband told you to. This woman is nuts. I, and I don't know how else to say it. She's nuts. 
And I will tell you, whatever the enthusiasm gap might be for people who are, you know, um, Democrats who want to be Trump, it, my advice to you would be in the upcoming elections, you put Hillary Clinton, you just put her in her own box of deplorables and keep her as far away as possible. Because I will tell you, I think you bring her out. And a lot of people just say, wait, wait a second, is this really how you think of us? This is how you think of people in Florida or in Texas. This is how you think of all the people in all the different states because, gee, we're, we're not the glitterati. You know, this isn't New York City or it's not Hollywood. Well, that's that kind of out-of-touch stuff that was the reason that so many people didn't like her in the first place. Let's see. Here's our text. Uh, this was the main reason President Trump got voted in. Heaven help us if Hillary would have gotten voted in with those ideals. Um Let's see. Jeff and Appleton says she is a basket of deplorables. That's why I refuse to vote for her. Out of touch, touting who to go, how good Obamacare was when people can't afford to go to it. Um, let's see. Um, <laughs> um, that's that's Hillary. That's why she didn't win. She makes excuses for her loss. Uh, manipulative and narcissistic. Interesting. Here's a text. Hillary married somebody from the very areas of this country that Donald Trump won. How do you spell hypocrite? Yeah, it, it, isn't isn't that interesting? Bill Clinton came from Arkansas. That would be, I, I think, not one of the power centers of the East and West Coast. 414-799-1620. Lloyd on the South Side. Lloyd, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Lloyd. Hello. Hi, Lloyd. I have to agree with Hillary generally. Um, I mean, certainly there's people who had other things that, that they voted for Trump for, for instance, Supreme Court nominee or, you know, mm-hmm. and other federal judges, et cetera. But generally, uh, a lot of people who did vote for him were afraid of of what his views were on minorities, et cetera. Now, of course, um, what you're saying is not true. There were over 3 million more people that did vote for her. So to say that she lost because people didn't like her her views is not true. Oh, well, my God. You're not, you're not going to recycle this she won the popular vote thing. She lost the election. Well, yeah, that's true. But you're saying that people didn't like her. People didn't like No, I, thanks to call what I'm saying that people didn't like her. People were not that into Hillary Clinton. This... Hillary Clinton should have, she should have beaten Barack Obama eight years earlier. She didn't because people were not that into her. And the same thing was true with, uh, again, the, the, the Trump race. This was a race that I, I think most of us, including me, you know, we, we saw this. We, uh, Hillary Clinton's not going to be able to beat Donald Trump, not going to lose to Donald Trump. She didn't think she was, but she did because she lost, and in particular, yeah, she racked up big margins on the coast in New York, and she did really well in California. But in all that that flyover country, the little people responded and didn't like her. So, yes, I, I stand by my comment. The reason she lost is that the American people and the way we select presidents were not into her. And, you know, the, the case, the fact and point is, how insulting. I mean, okay, so if you're a Trump, you're... You are a white woman that voted for Donald Trump. I mean, and the thing is, she believes this. There's no question in my mind. She believes this in her heart of hearts. You were a white woman who voted for Donald Trump. It's only because, I don't know, you were under the thumb of your husband or your boss or your son. Really? Let's talk to Irene, who's calling us from Illinois. Hi, Irene. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. What do you think? 
Uh, first of all, my husband had no influence as to the way I vote. Oh, come on, Irene. Um, he, he was just dominating. You you were just shaking in that voting booth because, you know, you, you didn't want to do something that would upset your husband. <laughs> no, my husband never dominates me. And if I upset him, I upset him. He has to deal with it. <laughs> you know, and Hillary needs, of course, to progress to retirement. Uh, the other comment I made was that I have a son-in-law who's black. I have a granddaughter who's half black. I have great nephews and nieces that are half Mexican, so the deplorables are far from being uh, discriminatory. Yeah, okay, so you don't fit in her profile. You're a a white woman who was not dominated by your husband and and actually has a a number of people from various minority groups in your family, so it's it's not that prejudiced, too. Boy, you just don't fit the profile, Irene. Yeah, I'm a deplorable. Yeah, I get right now. Thanks for call. Right, and and of course now, but but see, on the other hand, you live in Illinois, so because you voted for Hillary, she feels that you know you you are enlightened because she carried Minnesota. It's only you know the rest of us, those of us who live in Wisconsin and and support people like Scott Walker, I guess. Well, we must be part of the that basket of deplorables. Holy cow! This is a text. I'm a white woman. I voted for Trump not necessarily because I agree with everything he does, but because I don't like Hillary, and she is the kind of woman that doesn't represent me. And I am a woman who can think for herself. Well, apparently Hillary doesn't think so if you didn't vote for her. 227, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 229, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Bob Euchre back on the radio. The Cactus League is underway, and you can check out the crew's entire spring training broadcast schedule in the Brewers section of WTMJ.com or by texting the word Brewers to 414-799-1620. Opening day, they open in San Diego. That's two weeks from uh, Thursday. And then the home opener opener is that following Monday, three weeks from Monday. We've got a great opening day broadcast planned. It's a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to being there as well when we come back. All right, criminal charges issued earlier today against the father and mother who allowed, I don't know, a child to get access to a gun. We're going to talk about whether gun locks would have made any difference. It's 2.35, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. This is one of those just horrible, horrible situations. And, And again, after it happens, everybody tries to find answers you know, do you need more laws? What could we do to stop this type of stuff? Um, the, the mayor has a press conference where he says, hey, we're, we're going to make like trigger locks, gun locks available, which, by the way, I, I don't have a problem with at all. I mean, I think one of the keys to owning a firearm is responsible firearm ownership. And if that means putting trigger locks on guns, especially if there's houses where kids should, are around, you, you should you should have one like that. But would that make a difference? All right, here's the story. This relates to the, the accidental shooting of the nine-year-old girl who was shot and killed Saturday by her 10-year-old brother. The two, 10-year-old brother, nine-year-old girl, were home alone with their four younger siblings when the shooting occurred. So you've got six kids Home alone, the oldest one is 10 years old. All right, um, the parents 
Marcel Jolks, 32, and Talisha Lee, 29, had left them home alone. I'm going to give you the details of the complaint in just a second. Um, the, the 10-year-old says he goes upstairs. So they're home alone. Six kids, 10 and under. Kid goes upstairs. The boy and sees, this is his statement, sees the girl with a gun, takes it from her and removes the magazine. As she was, the girl, spinning around the room, um, her brother, the brother began waving the gun around, accidentally pulled the trigger, fired the gun, hit and, and killed his, his sister. Okay, that's, that's the story. They were playing with the gun. And there was a bullet in the chamber, apparently. It went off. Uh, then the parents come home. And they, they find the child, they bring the child to the hospital, but it's it's too late. All right, now I'm, I'm looking at the criminal complaint because the details are, are sort of, of dazzling. Um, the police interview the, the parents. The guy, the dad, um, says, well, the, the, the mom, they're not married, but the mom had just purchased the handgun um, on March 9th, so the, the day before the shooting. Um, he says his initial story is that, um, well, um, I was at the grocery store. She was home. Um, and then, you know, th- th- this happened. You know, we, we don't exactly know how it happened. Well, then, you know, after being questioned, what he said is that he and the mom left the kids home alone on March 10th. He said they went shopping for clothes. They left the kids home alone for 30 to 45 minutes. Arriving home, they found that the child had been shot. All right, the dad is a convicted felon. During questioning, they they asked him about, hey, you know, did you ever handle this gun? I mean, what what's going on here? So then they go and they talk to the mom. I'm reading from the criminal complaint now. Ultimately, um, you know, first of all, mom doesn't admit that they were the kids were home alone. First of all, she said, I was downstairs cleaning. Then she says, I was talking to a furnace repairman. Um, ultimately, though, um, she says, yeah, um, he, he being dad, had left the house the previous evening with another individual. That individual handed her the 9mm gun that she had previously purchased, indicating that he and dad did not need it. Around 1.30 a.m., Dad returned to the residence, went to the closet where the gun was stored, and then left. Dad returned to the residence later that morning and handed uh, Mom the gun um, inside the gun case, instructing her to put this up. So the implication of this is that Dad's a felon, Mom isn't, Mom buys the gun for Dad. That's the implication of this. Lord knows why what dad was doing with the gun that night, but they left it, you know, in the house where there were young people. And apparently, you know, one of the kids found it, they were playing with it. And, you know, we know what, what happened um, there. Apparently there was a gun lock. They did find a trigger lock in the residence. A red gun lock was located inside the residence on the top of a shoebox. Um, neither mom or dad used the gun lock to secure the gun. So, I mean, kind of cutting through this, you have mom who is living with dad who is a felon. Um, mom buys a handgun the day before this shooting. Dad and some other guy take the gun. Lord knows what they did with it, you know, that night. They come back. 
They put the gun in a closet or something. It's not secured. Mom and dad then leave. Six kids home alone. The nine-year-old finds the gun and is playing with it. Her 10-year-old brother takes it from her, and then he's kind of playing with it, I guess. They don't realize that the gun is loaded. The gun goes off, and now the nine-year-old is, is dead. That, that's that's kind of the circumstance, and she's, she's not kind of coming back. Now, again, as I said, there's a press conference, and the mayor is talking about how we want to make trigger locks available and things like that. And by the way, again, like I say, I have no problem with that at all. I, I mean, if, if it... If it enhances safety and firearm safety by giving out free trigger locks, that that's I'm all in favor of that. Now, again, in this particular case, though, what you had is, number one, you had dad who was a felon who's not legally able to possess firearms. Mom goes out and buys a gun, presumably for dad. I think that is a fair inference of this. And then they leave the gun loaded in the house while they leave six kids 10 and younger where the gun is you know within the reach of the kids and the kids get it they're playing with it and now you have the situation okay so i mean i i think it's it's clear here that this isn't a scenario where you know more laws would have made any difference at all there, there shouldn't have been a gun in that house where dad was Mom shouldn't have purchased the gun if she was buying it, you know, so that dad could use it for whatever reasons. You know, there's laws that say that you can't, you're not legally allowed to leave guns where kids can get them. I mean, there, there's probably, they've been charged with various crimes, but there's probably at least a half dozen offenses and maybe more that you could find if you really started thinking about this. So this isn't a situation where you need more laws. This isn't a situation where free trigger locks would have made any difference because there was a gun lock in the house. Mom and dad just chose not to put the gun lock on the gun. And then mom and dad left the house so that, you know, the kids were able to get it. So you have just an absolute stone cold mess and a huge tragedy. All right. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You have a nine-year-old girl who is dead accidentally shot by her 10-year-old brother playing with a gun that had just apparently recently been brought in the house and was left in a spot where mom, where the kids could get at it when the adults were gone. All right, mom and dad have now been charged with various crimes. Dad, for example, is charged with child neglect resulting in death That is a penalty that carries up to 25 years in jail. He's also been charged with possession of a firearm by a felon. Apparently, um, he's also been charged with uh, possession with intent to distribute um, a relatively small quantity of marijuana. Um, Mom has been charged with offenses as well. Do you put the two of them in prison? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. Do you put him in prison? And you put him in prison for a long time. It's 243. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I'll tell you where I come down on this, but I'm curious as to how you would handle a situation like this. It is a tragedy, but there's a nine-year-old girl that's dead. Stick around. 247, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I'm sorry, there is so much wrong with this story that you just don't know where to start. And now you have a nine-year-old girl that's dead. All right, first you have mom and dad. Six kids, 10 and under. They leave them home alone. 
All right, let's just, just start with that. Six kids, 10 and under, they leave them home alone. You know, 10-year-old and 9-year-old, you know, shouldn't be left alone to supervise younger kids. Okay, so you've got that problem that goes on. All right, then it even starts to escalate. You have mom who is not a, does not have a criminal record or is not prohibited from buying a gun. She goes to a gun store and makes, this is what, I, I think it's a reasonable inference from the complaint. She is the straw purchaser. She buys this gun because dad, who is a felon, couldn't buy the gun. So she buys the gun for dad. Dad then has access to the gun. I have a text here saying, I think there needs to be a law that says, if you live with a felon, you cannot have a firearm in the house. Actually, there is a law that says that. I mean, you, if you're a felon, it's not, it's, you, you cannot be in possession of a firearm and construct, what they use the term constructive possession. That means you either, there's actual possession, you've got the gun in your hands or on your person. There's constructive possession, which means you have access to it. And, and yeah, if, if you're a felon, you can't be in a house. It doesn't matter whether it's tight, it's, it's purchased by mom or not. If that gun is in the nightstand, it is illegal for you to have it. That is possession of a firearm by a felon. But it sounds like mom goes out, mom buys the gun because she can legally do it and then turns it over to dad. Dad, God knows what he does after she buys the gun. Dad is out with one of his buddies doing whatever they're doing with the gun. Come back. They stick the gun in the house. And then they don't put the trigger lock on it or anything. They leave it there. Apparently the gun, at least according to the stories that are out there, the gun is loaded and chambered, you know. So, I mean, it's it's ready to fire. They leave the gun in a spot where the kids can get access to it. And then, again, the kids start playing with it. And inevitably this type of stuff happens. This is just also very wrong. You don't even know where to start with it. But having said that, I mean, look, I, it's terrible that this happened, but you know what? If I am the judge, and Megan, maybe this is one of these reasons why my future does not hold being a judge, I, and they are convicted of this, I, I'm dropping the hammer on them. I, I just am. There is somebody that is dead because of this. Number one, there shouldn't have been a gun in the house. And, and how often do we talk about, you know, we talk about gun control and we talk about trigger locks. doesn't matter. Yes, if they had that firearm, there should have been a trigger lock on it, so the kids couldn't have done that. But that's not the point. The gun shouldn't have been in the house in the first place. It was against the law for her to buy the gun and furnish it to her you know, boyfriend slash father of her children, who was a felon. It was illegal for him to possess it. And if the two of them had followed that law... Those children would be uh, that child would be alive today. I mean, that's that's the first point that you you know you have to stop start with. That's what led to this, and then of course you have the negligent handling of the firearm and all those things. So there's a million different laws that are are out there that cover this situation. When you behave in this type of irresponsible behavior, and you know what, even even if the gun had been allowed to be legally possessed. And it was left in a situation where the kids could have access to it. I believe that would call for prison time. The fact that the gun was not legally possessed and it was apparently procured under semi-false pretenses with the idea that it was going to be used for something bad. Yeah, I mean, this is a situation where mom and dad need to go to prison. Period. I understand that mom and dad didn't pull the trigger. But if you're going to bring a gun into a household, you have a responsibility. 
you know, um, you know, period. You've got that responsibility to behave in a responsible fashion. Michelle and Waterford text, lock them up. Um, time to start making Milwaukee the safe city that Tom Barrett proclaims it to be. Um, you know, here's, it's just, it is the ongoing frustration that you have with this. And, and I understand that you've got people who talk about there being too many firearms that are out there. I, yes, there, there are. And there's people that talk about you need to have more laws. Okay. But in this particular situation, again, it was illegal what happened. Mom apparently bought the gun with the idea of giving it to dad who wasn't legally able to possess it. And all sorts of bad things ended up happening. John in Lake Geneva. John, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, I'll I'll keep it short. I, I heard this story about four times today on the radio. Nobody's talking about a straw buy. She bought this for him because it was illegal for him to buy it. Yeah. So she bought it. Yeah. And it's called a straw buy. Yep. Nobody's seeing that she's being charged with that. Well, she's being charged. She's being charged with furnishing a knowingly furnishing a firearm to a convicted felon. So, I mean, in addition, in addition to the child neglect leading to death. So, she, but but yeah, right. It, it's very clear to me that she she purchased that gun because he couldn't buy it and she wanted to get it to him. And the only thing I don't understand is why is Milwaukee handing out gun locks when if, if the gun lock was on it, yeah, the kid wouldn't have died. But first of all, you're not supposed to have a gun. I have guns, and my kids knew better when they're little right. boys that not right. to touch my guns unless dads are all. Well, well, right. And also, I mean, keep in mind, thanks for calling, keep in mind, they had a gun lock. There was a gun lock in the house. The gun lock was on a shoebox that was somewhere in the house, but... They, they they just didn't think to use it, but of course that gun shouldn't have been in there in the first place. It's just it is. Look, it is frustrating. This is one of these senseless sort of deaths, and people are going to talk about using this as a, an argument for gun control and things like that. And the reality is, it's not. What you have is you had two bad people. Yes, mom was a bad pe- was a bad person in doing what she did and buying the gun. Dad. Dad, with a criminal record and a felony conviction, shouldn't have had the gun. Don't know what he was going to do with it again that night, why he took it out. But the reality is you've got a nine-year-old child that is dead because of what mom and dad did, and they need to be held accountable. It's 2.54. When we come back, we'll find out what John McCure has on his mind. Stick around.